Um, as uh, Mardashe had said, this is our two-year anniversary, and we'll do a little something-something at the end of the month, but it is God's grace that we are still here. Um, y'all endured these past year, two years, the same way we endured it. We all still here. So can we do something? Can we give God a hand clap of praise for, for allowing us to endure this thing? Because it you know, I don't know if y'all know, it wasn't, it wasn't your strength, it wasn't your ingenuity, it wasn't your wisdom, it wasn't how safe you kept yourself. None of that kept you. None of that kept you. You did it, it's good, it's wise, you do it. Lock your door at night, that's a smart thing to do. But know that it's God who keeps us safe, right? It's God who protects, it's God who heals. And so we got to make sure that he gets all the praise for that. And he gets all the praise for this meager little place right here that we call Pillar Church. A couple years ago, I uh, took a ride through Fort Worth. I drove through downtown, drove through the west side. I drove through Magnolia. I went over to the river east area, Riverside. Then I went to TCU. Then I went over to the south side. Then I went over to Eastwood. Then I went to Hanley. And then I finished my journey at the corner of Miller and Rosedale. And while I was doing that, I was observing. I was looking, I was seeing things, trying to feel the feels, smell the smells, right? I noticed a couple things about our city. I noticed that there are different types of stores in different areas of the city. I noticed that the roads were kept differently depending on which area of the city you lived in. I noticed that the public transportation even looks different in different areas of the city. I noticed that there are certain types of shelters in certain types of places, but they're not in other places. I noticed that the racial makeup of the city had people divided by streets and neighborhoods, which is like most places in this country, sadly to say. I noticed that there are a different type and number of teen centers, depending on which area of the city you're in. I even noticed the difference in the number of loose dogs in one areas of the city over against other areas of the city. I noticed that our city was broken in many ways. And I came to this conclusion. And the conclusion is that Sunday is not enough. Sunday is not enough. Sunday is not enough to push back darkness in the city. Sunday is not enough to mentor, shepherd, or disciple the people around us. Sunday is not enough to make any noticeable impact in our community. Because if Sunday was enough, we would see more healthy growth from our churches. If Sunday by itself was meant to be enough, we would see a noticeable impact in our communities. If Sunday by itself was meant to be enough, then we would see pillars of truth all over the city standing strong on the gospel of Christ. But that's not what I saw. And that's not what you see. If you just open your eyes and look a little bit, you don't see that. I didn't see that. But far too many of our communities, we're leaning on the strength of one day of the week. And far too many of our churches, we are leaning on the strength of one day of the week 
to do God's work. It is just not the way it was supposed to be, and it is not working. Sunday is not enough. You guys ever watch National Geographic? That's one of my shows. I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed, I like to watch history, and I'm all in that. You, you feel me, bro? History, oh my goodness. I was watching Nat Geo, and I saw, come on, my Nat Geo people. They don't got to be ashamed, Joe. We all here. And you already know, you, you saw, you see the buffalo roaming, and what do you see in, in, the, in, the, in the thicket? But some female lions getting ready to pounce, right? And what normally happens in those scenarios is that the, the lion comes out, he finds the weakest of the buffalo, clack, puts them, them claws into him, and then the buffalo, the herd, start to run, right? And that's normal. That's what's supposed to happen. But on this night, when I was watching that geo, the little buffalo was standing there, and the lioness comes out, and clack, what's the claws? And I'm like, I'm thinking, yo, it's a rat. The buffalo turned in toward the lion, and they put their horns down. And they started to encroach on the lion, on the pride of lions. The buffalo started encroaching on the pride of lions. They're supposed to be running, but they decided not to run. They decided to fight this time. And I was like, oh, I was watching this. But I was watching this right after my ride. And I started thinking, what if the herd only decided to defend its young on Sunday? That one poor buffalo would be gone. And I was convicted because I realized that many of us, me included, take that very same principle and apply it to the protection of our people, our community, our families, our kids. We take one day a week and say, y'all go train them up. And then the rest of the week, we leave them to the lions. We don't turn our horns down enough. The point is simple. Sunday is not enough. Our mission is to make disciples. And if that's our mission, Sunday is not enough. Our aim at Pillar Church is to lead people closer to Jesus and each other. And if that's our aim, then Sunday is not enough. If we want to see our community set free from idolatry and, gener and, and generational victimization, Sunday is not enough. It's just not going to be enough. If we want our children to be raised in the instruction and admonition of the Lord, Sunday ain't going to cut it. See, as I drove the streets, my heart began to break a little bit. My soul sank. As I looked at how sin ravaged the different areas of the city, and not just sin in the areas that it's obvious to see sin, I saw sin ravaging the areas that get to cover up their sin with wealth. And as I looked at the, the ones who can't afford to cover up their sin, and the ones who could afford to cover up their sin, but it manifested in their heart disposition, I started to accuse God. And I'm looking around, I'm like, yo, God, where you at? Because I'm seeing the sin on the streets, I'm seeing people struggling, I'm seeing people in pain, I'm seeing people not able to care for themselves, and I'm like, God, if you was real, and you was good, y'all had these thoughts, right? Where are you? Where you at? You see what's going on and you do nothing. I indicted God of neglect and favoritism because that's what I thought I saw. 
just a few days ago, I was driving down my beloved street and to see the, the mental illness that is rampant in the neighborhoods that surround mine. I'm like, God, did you see this? The man's falling down in the middle of the street, God. What you going to do? Have you ever felt the way I felt at that time when, when you see something really hard? Some examples, after watching the beheading of God's people on that beach in Libya, I had that feeling. God, you're watching your saints be beheaded? Strike lightning, blow whirlwind, do something. After hearing yet of another school shooting or a neighborhood shooting or a youth getting killed or kidnapped or is missing, God, where you at? Some of y'all, I don't want to bring up bad memories, but some of y'all watch loved ones die in agony. Or you know of a loved one who passed away a horrible death. If you've ever been in a NICU, in certain areas of the city, you do see crack babies. And as you stare at these little babies, you're like, God, what's really good? Where you at? You see this. Do something about it. I praise God for the passage this morning. This morning's passage feels my pain. And in this morning's passage, God spoke to me through this word. You can turn to Micah chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little context on what's going on in the book of Micah right here. The people of Israel have just experienced an economic upturn. They are what's called a vassal nation which means that Israel at this point of history is being run by another nation who's ruling over them. They're called a vassal. Their king is a vassal king. He's subject to another king. But they had an economic spike, an economic boom as a result of being under the leadership of the king who had authority over Israel during this time. But just like every economic boom, somebody's paying the price for those people to come up. There are a demographic of people who are suffering as a result of the others thriving. There are a group of people who are making their money off the backs of those who have no money. And those people in that day who are suffering and watching everybody else come up, but they're out there, got nothing to eat. There's no food where they keep their food. And they're wondering the same thing I'm wondering. Only they're the ones experiencing it, not driving through it. And they're saying, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, why is it this way? You said I'm your people. And that's where it's different. If if we're his people, why are you letting me go through this? And they indict God. Look what is said in Micah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your complaint. We serve a God who is welcoming these indictments from his people. Because what rattles him, what rattles us, doesn't rattle him. The nation of Israel is a lot like us. They are a griping people. We are a griping people. 
There are people who often accuse God of unloving actions. I just did that. There are people who, who accuse God of neglect and partiality. I just did that. And if you're honest, you did it too at some point. This is where they're most like us. They're quick to receive God's kindness and goodness, but they're quick to accuse God when things don't go their way. When God gives them the good stuff, the stuff that they want, they're good, they're happy, they're in, they're in, they're, thank you God. And then something goes wrong and they're like, see, he don't love me. They're just like you and me. And God says, bring your case, Canaan. Bring your case, people. Let the mountains and the hills be witnesses in the cosmic court. You got something to say about me? Speak it, God says in that first verse. Bring it. I want to hear your, your complaint against me. When I drove through the city, I spoke and saw the heart condition of the wealthy because I talked to them and their lack of true empathy that they carried as they sat safely in their tower of wealth. I spoke to those individuals who were experiencing homelessness and I, and I listened. I didn't say much, I listened. And what I heard was despair for some of them, shame for some of them, a desire to escape for some of them. I talked to a bunch of inner city youth at a couple of teen centers and what I heard was aspirations to be wealthy. What I heard was they needed a stable home. What I heard was that education is a waste of time. That's what I gathered from people. And so I charged God, where you at? Why is, why is everything so broken? Why is everything not right? God, where are you? I look at verse 1. It's, God says, rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your complaint. But then look at verse 2. Verse 2 switches it up. The Lord says, listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth. Because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. So here we are, here they are, griping against God, complaining about the situation and the circumstances that they find themselves in. Here are us doing the exact same thing, and God says, bring your argument against me, because I got something to say when you're finished. What does he indict his people with? What does God have to say when we're done griping and complaining and whining? He indicts his people of forgetfulness. Look at verse 3. That's what God says. He says, my people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, verse 4, indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. I sent Moses. I sent Aaron. I sent Miriam ahead of you. Stop there. What's God doing? Reminding them of something. God hearkens back to the oppression that the people suffered in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh. And if you want a little explanation of that, we actually preached a series called Freedom from Oppression, and it's talking about the Israelites' oppression in the land of Egypt. And it was brutal. It was harsh. Many deaths. 
Many struggled, many hungry, many much starvation. But God reminds them about his mighty hand and that he delivered them from 400 years of oppression and wilderness wandering. What does he remind them, them, what does he remind them of specifically? He reminds them of the plagues that he inflicted to display his power over the Egyptian gods. We went over that. He reminds them of how he literally split the sea in half to display his might over nature. He reminds them of the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire during the night to display his guidance of his people. He reminds them of the manna that came from the sky and the water that came from the rock to to remind them of his provision for them. This is what he says. When he says that, all of this runs through their brain. He reminds them of that promised land that he said they would have and take one day. And it reminds them of his loyalty to his people. Oh, my people, you indict me, God says. You got got something to say about me? Y'all done forgot. I indict you. But God's not done with his examples. Look at verse 5. My people, remember what King Balak of Moab proposed. What Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened at Acacia, Acacia Grove, Gilgal, and you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. Again, God reminds them of this time where King Balak was afraid and had, had beef with the people of Israel. He was so concerned about the people of Israel that he hired a prophet for hire named Balaam to come and curse the people because he noticed that when Balaam sends curses, curses come. So he says, yo, I need you to curse these people. And when Balaam comes, God ain't having him curse his people. Instead, God has Balaam do the very opposite of curses. He speaks blessings over the people. And God's like, don't y'all forget what I did? God is demonstrating his watch care over his people. And, And this is the kicker. He did all of these things for God's people in the midst of them being disobedient to him. The people in the, the people who were being freed from Egyptian oppression, they weren't obedient to God. They were sinful in all kinds of ways, worshiping all kinds of false gods. But God was kind. God was gentle. God redeemed them despite them. He showed them that they can't do good enough to get redeemed by me. I redeem by grace through faith because of love. I love you, therefore I redeem you. The people were disobedient during King Balak's day. They deserved curses, but God, because he loved them, made made the prophet speak blessings over them instead. Just like the people in Micah's day, everybody's having short-term memories, short-term memory. We tend to forget what God has done in the past, which leads us to not believe in what he has the power to do in the future. What we do is we don't do what Psalm 103 says. Psalm 103 verse 2 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and then underline this, forget not all his benefits. It sounds anticlimactic to be indicted with forgetfulness, but forgetfulness makes you do a lot of things that are not wise and not smart. As I saw pain, I saw brokenness, I saw ignorance, I saw selfishness, 
I saw fatherlessness. I saw disregard. I saw mental illness. I saw racist bigots. Literally saw that. I saw churches disregarding the plight of their people in their neighborhoods. I saw hurting people lost with nowhere to run. I saw all these things. And yet simultaneously as I'm watching these things and I'm getting my blood's boiling, God is indicting me of something actively. Caney, don't you dare forget. How soon we dismiss what God has done, what God can do, because what our circumstances cause us to do. Circumstances are so powerful. Circumstances cause us to literally forget everything. And we focus on one thing. And we miss the forest for the tree. So the flow is this. We indict God of neglect and favoritism and abandonment, just like they did. And then God turns around and indicts his people of forgetfulness, right? And now the people of Israel get a bit sarcastic with God. Why? Sarcasm is the language of hopelessness and pain. And so they begin to speak in sarcastic language. And you know this if you've been around kids at all and you tell them to clean something. You want me to clean the whole room? Right? That's how they do it, right? And you're like, the whole room. Yeah. Everything? Even that? You're like, yeah, what, 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 what is that child expressing to you? Hopelessness. I can't do that. That's the whole thing. I'm scared. That's what they do in verse 6 and 7. Lord, they say, Lord, what do you want from me? That's what they're saying. I see this. Now you're indicting me. What do you want? Look what it says. What should I bring before the Lord when I come bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings? Those are sin offerings, y'all. He said, you want that? I can, okay. Year old calves. Verse 7. Would the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? Or perhaps 10,000 streams of oil? Y'all hear the sarcasm now, right? Ain't nobody got 10,000 streams of oil. Ain't nobody got one stream. Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offering of my body for my own sin? There's a progression here. It goes, what do you want? You want a sin offering? You want some rams? What do you want? Oh, you want, you want me to sacrifice? You want 10,000 streams of oil? You want my son? You want to take my blood from me? What do you want? Because I look out here, and I ain't giving you enough to make you act, and so what do you want from me in order to make you act? It's crazy how a works-based theology creeps in so quickly and so easily. You, you think you do something, that's how God, it's going to provoke God's hand to move? You presume on God like that? And notice the, you, you saw the, the progression of it. And, and what I heard when I read that, what I saw when I read that is pain. I saw depression in those statements because they know they can't do that. They don't know what to do anymore. But there's themes of redemption in their statements. God sovereignly gave them themes of redemption in their statements. See, they started off with saying, do you want us to bow ourselves before you? But it's funny how Jesus bowed down to the will of the Father. He doesn't want your bowing. That's not what he's looking for. Then he says, what do you want, the blood of, of, of rams as a sin offering? And it's funny how, how this only the blood of Jesus that became our sin offering, Hebrews 10, 4, 1 Peter 1, 19. He says, no, the blood of rams ain't going to sacrifice, even though that's what you said. You asked me, do you want that? You want, the blood of my first, you want the blood of my firstborn son? I don't want the blood of your son. 
your blood of your son is powerless. It's the blood of my son that got to get this work done. You blind people, can't you see? Didn't they see all that God had done for them in verse 4 or 5? But here's what's crazy. We can read about the history of what God has done all we want. When you walk out on them streets, they're the same. Right? We come here on Sunday and we read about what God did, and then we go back out there, and nothing has changed. So what's up? We miss God's point in the passage, though. What did God say in verse 4 and 5? He says, I sent you Moses. I sent you Aaron. I sent you Miriam. I sent you Balaam. God sent spirit-empowered men and women to lead his people back to holiness. And what you think he's doing now? We drive around complaining about the city, crying, complaining, and we're like, God, where you at? And God is like, bro, I'm right here. I sent you. Not just on Sunday. I didn't abandon Fort Worth. I sent Fort Worth Jesus to redeem their soul from idolatry to change the disposition of their heart. To save them from the wrath of my Father. Jesus' blood. And then, when Jesus rose, who did he send? The Spirit of God. And when the Spirit of God came, he indwelt those by grace, who have faith by grace in his Son's work and name. And then he tells us a commission to go therefore and preach the gospel. And to do good works because Ephesians tells us that we were created to do good works. We weren't created to drive around and complain about what God has not done. We're called to recognize what he has done. And what he's done is he's filled you with his spirit to get to work. Not to be there one day a week. Not to sit comfortably in your tower. I don't care about your economic status. That's irrelevant in the kingdom. You have the gospel Why are, we, why are we sitting down? Why are we riding the pine complaining about what God has not done? You know something? The nature of truth, the nature of good news and truth is we share it by default. We have to. It's like a thing. There's a sale at Macy's. If I tell you that, everybody's going. Right? I'm going to share that good news. Guess what I saw in the paper? Sale at Macy's tomorrow. That's what you're calling everybody, right? We claim to believe and know the truth that saves the souls of men and women, yet we say nothing. And I question whether or not we truly believe that we possess truth that can save souls. It's good enough for your private life, but it ain't good enough to tell somebody else about. I ain't coming down on y'all. I'm preaching to me. I'm just as shook as y'all. Every evangelist in this church, and we got a plethora of them. Pastor Eric is one of them. Talk to him. Struggling sometimes with that. God has not sent you alone. God has drafted an army of you. He didn't just send Aaron and, and Moses and Miriam and Balaam. Look around. He gave you an army to walk these streets with. 
to encourage one another when we're fearful, when we're believing lies, when we're falling into sin. I need you. Like, I'm saying that like for real. I actually need your prayers. I need you to encourage me the same way you need my prayers and you need me and others to encourage you. We are people that need to be loved by one another. And as we pray together, as we fast together, as we seek the filling of the Spirit of God together, we can walk the block together. We can observe our streets together and and have a change of disposition. Rather than walking the streets complaining about what we see, we could walk the streets looking at themes of redemption. We could see gospel work in these things. But we're comfortable riding the pine. God has set forth his people to proclaim freedom and peace in the name of Jesus by leading them closer to Jesus and each other, to lead people out of the quicksand of idolatry. He's called us to serve our community the best we know how and only in the name of love. To fight for the souls of our kids, not allowing them to be sacrificed on the altar of popular opinion. To long suffer, pray, encourage the brokenhearted. He's called us to remind the community of God's love for them. He's called us to remind the community that God has not abandoned them no matter how bleak it looks. We are what's called ambassadors of light in darkness, right? That means we come heralding good news. But you won't share it if you don't believe it. You won't. You won't share it if you don't know it. You won't share it if you don't believe it. And that's just true. And I don't expect anybody in here to believe it 100% of the time. I would love for that to be true. But the reality is, I'm doubting sometimes, and you're doubting it sometimes. And that's when you need your brother or your sister to speak truth into your life, remind you of who God is, to kindle afresh the faith that was in you, and then to hit the block and do the same for every soul that God pricks us to, to engage with. This isn't a new commission. This is a Micah commission. Look at verse 8. God says, mankind, he has told you, he's told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Act justly, do fa- uh, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God. This is what God has called us to do. He's called us to justice, faithfulness, and walking humbly with God. And he's called us to do that seven days a week. To do justice means to recognize the ungodliness and the partialities that exist in the arenas that we work and play in and to call them things out. To not allow injustice to stand in any arena that you can recognize. If you see it, you have to say something about it. Help be a part of the change that you want to see in it. That doesn't happen by gathering on Sundays. I wanted to say this earlier. I got way ahead of my sermon. I got excited. Sorry. There's a statement. I want to read this. It says, I believe that if your tangible theology 
does not exist in your community, the validity of your orthodoxy can be called into question. Let me say that again. I believe that if your tangible theology, this, this is your tangible theology. If your tangible theology does not exist in your community, the validity of your orthodoxy can be called into question. In other words, we can't talk it and not walk it. We cannot. Authenticity is everything. I'd rather you admit that you're not and repent of that thing than pretend that you are. Your walk clarifies your, your talk clarifies your walk and your walk gives credibility to your talk. We can't come in here and just pontificate on Sunday and expect gospel conversions and community restoration off of one day a week. It doesn't work that way. What God does is he sends us to do work all day, every day. There's no vacations from Jesus. God does miraculous things in and through his people when he sends them to work and they actually go. There's a biblical record of this. He sent Joseph to work and he saved Israel from famine. Moses to work, saved people from destruction. Joshua to work, inhabited the promised land. Judges, kings, prophets to work, turning the people's hearts back where they need to go. Jesus came and did work, healing, proclaiming transformative truth, sacrificing himself. He sent apostles, pastors, deacons to work, to trailblaze his name throughout the generations. We're the fruit of their work. And now it's your turn. That's what you're here for. That's why you're here. He's sending us to work to defend our city against idolatrous things that desire to kill them, hurt them, sway them in the wrong direction. Hopelessness has no place where hope is. And so we got to bring hope there. He says, mankind, he's told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires to act justly, to love faithfulness. What's faithfulness? That word faithfulness is a multifaceted term. It's similar to the word love in Greek, where love has Five different meanings in Greek, brotherly love, erotic love, right? God's, uh, not God's love, strong love. There's different forms of love in that one word, agape, right? The word here for faithfulness is multifaceted in the same way. It means loyalty. It means love. It means longevity. It means kindness. It basically means that when you serve your community through the love of Christ, they cannot and should not be a one-week project throughout the year nor a photo opportunity. That's what that means. Because that's what we do. 51 weeks of the year, we could care less. Well, we got one week of a service project. Let's go and do it. They ain't got no milk the rest of the week. They need their brothers and sisters the rest of the week. Faithfulness means day in and day out. It's hard. It's tiring. It's laborious. We're going to fall down, trip, all that. But we keep going. Because the spirit of God is within us. I want to challenge you guys with this before we get to that last part about walking humbly with God. Does the community know your name? This community, East Side. I'm talking about, does the East Side know you at all? Anybody here know you? If you've been worshiping with us for any amount of time and the East Side does not know you, the East Side got to get to know you. They got to see the whites of your eyes, not just driving in one day a week. Walk these streets, pray for people, love people, encourage people, play your position. Don't try to be a boss, be a servant. But go and serve, go and love. 
go and be served by some of the wonderful individuals we have in this community already. We got some beasts out here doing work. Can we join it? Can we get in on that? We can and we will. Because God has called us to be nothing less than that. He's empowered us to to defend our city, to defend our families, to defend our theology, to defend our neighbors, and lead our city with a gospel-centered restoration movement. And then he tells us to walk humbly with God, and that's part of the key. You do none of this without a personal relationship with Christ Jesus himself. Because he sustains our efforts, he renews our strength, and it's in his power that we do any good at all. One soul that walks humbly with Jesus is a threat to the sin on the streets. And so that's what we need to do. That's what we need to be. God didn't abandon or forget about you nor this city. My indictment against him was really an indictment against me because I forgot God's power. I doubted God's love for our city. I chose to not believe God's word. I chose not to share the truth with my neighbor. I chose not to open up my dinner table for the people around me. I chose not to read the word of God to my children every single night. I chose not to fight for my marriage. I chose to allow sin to influence me in such a way that was unhealthy and driving me to to loneliness and despair. That's not on God. He didn't forget me. I forgot him. We forgot him, who he is, what he does, how he works. Get well acquainted with, get well acquainted with him again. And maybe he'll do some work in and through you. The city's been given what it needs to flourish. He sent Jesus to redeem people. He sent you and me to tell people about Jesus and to love them with tangible theology. And he told us what's good for us to do until Jesus returns. He told us to act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with God. That's what we're going to do. Father, thank you for thank you for reminding me and putting me in my place. Because the reality is I struggled with this then and I struggle with it now. And I'm just thankful that you didn't give up on me. You didn't give up on us. You didn't give up on our people. And the proof is we're still here. Because I know if it was me in your shoes, I would have gave up on me a long time ago. I'm just thankful I'm not you. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you have given the city gospel ministers. People who love the truth of God's word with all their soul. People who are hungry to share and to tell. People who are Barnabases will encourage my soul when I'm in the dirt. You gave me brothers and sisters in here that I could be real with. I don't got to lie in front of none of these people. I'm I'm weak, they weak. I'm broken, they broken. You can just be real. We need you. You do this working in through us, Lord, not on our own strength, not in our own wisdom, our own ingenuity. We ain't good. We ain't that good. But you, Lord, you're mighty. You're powerful. You sent your son, and you send us. Would we obey your commission? Would we do justice in every arena we are in? Would we love faithfully in every arena we are in? And would we walk humbly with you, playing our position? Something that Satan didn't do. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.